we continue our consideration of chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 in our Bible lessons from the first epistle of John. There we have read these words, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We have seen that to love the world cannot refer to the basic earth upon which we live, but must refer to the moral system of mankind in departure from that state which is acceptable to God and through which man can fellowship with God. It is therefore the fever of selfishness that prevails throughout the whole world. And we've had the positive statement that if this state of supreme love for this world system abides in us, then the love of the Father or the manifestation of the glorious being of God cannot at the same time be filling our hearts and minds. This is an utter impossibility. We come now in verse 16 to the consideration of the threefold division of the sins of men or of the world system. We may render as follows. Because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the vainglory of life is not out of from the Father, but is of the world. These desires are not sin in themselves, but the unlawful gratification of them is. Sin is not threefold, for all sin is a unit. It is a supreme self-seeking in spite of the claims of God and the claims of others. It is the means of self-gratification which appears to be threefold. Doubtless, more than one group of gratification is indulged in at the same time, but there is always one which is predominant over the others. Let us consider this threefold division. Notice we have the word desire rather than the word lust. The English word lust has come to have a, a base meaning of necessity, but this passage includes more than those who are categorized in the character of lust. And so we have the word desire, which may refer to some elevated things as far as man's evaluation is concerned. By the desire of the flesh, we are to conceive of those desires which spring from our physical existence. The basic desires are constitutional to be sure, and their fulfillment within the will of God would not be sinful. But these have become basely depraved, and handed down from generation to generation, by inheritance, but perhaps more so by example. They have been greatly inflamed, and spring forth in great power as a means of gratification. They embrace all the physical appetites and emotions which spring from the body. By the desires of the eyes, we are not to understand everything that the eyes may see. For the flesh is inflamed by what the eyes may see, to be sure. But we are to understand 
that mental gratification which desires to set the heart on beautiful objects. The great category of the artistic realm comes in here. It is an overdevelopment of mental delicacies, of finding supreme pleasure in having things just thus and so. For example, the arranging of a household full of vanities, with the mind so excited and taken up with every supposed necessary detail could not be called a physical indulgence, but would be classified under the indulgence of the eyes. What the eye sees does not terminate on the body, nor gratify any body desire, but is purely a mental vanity. These are the amiable sinners, as man would classify himself, who would shudder at certain physical indulgences but who are nevertheless sinners in the sight of God in that they have erected mighty idols and that God is not supreme in their lives, nor do their fellow men come in for equal consideration to their own welfare. They are just as truly in bondage as any with fleshly majors and most often more difficult to deal with and bring into the freedom of the light of God. Their minds are sharp to perceive that this would enhance this and that that, and are constantly bowing themselves down to their mental bondage. They, of course, find no lasting satisfaction in anything, as no sinner ever does. Then lastly, we have the vainglory of life, or the life. The word here means proud, haughty, self-confident, or vain self-confidence or an air of self-satisfaction. Now, indeed, this prevails to some extent in all those living apart from reconciliation to God. But there are some whose very walk and carriage shows forth their supreme self-pleasure. They have achieved internal self-prominence and have an attitude of satisfaction in the various moments and climaxes of their lives. They are not probably living in physical debasement, but may be very moral and uh, appear to be spiritual in the eyes of men. And thus we may classify vast multitudes who engage in religious worship of various sorts that is not founded on true biblical truth as the revelation from God. Indeed, Cain, in the early dawn of human history, was a religious worshiper, but he did not come the pathway that God had prescribed, and thus he would be in the category of the vainglory of life as far as his attempted worship shall be concerned. Thus we see that Satan himself is not interested in the base things of life because actually he does not have a physical constitution to partake of these immoralities as we classify them, but his great sin consisted in a personal dissatisfaction with being in great submission to God as the greatest of God's creation, and thus he wanted to become like the Most High, the scriptures say, and thus his essence of sin consisted in erecting himself in the place of deity in his own being. And thus sin has come down to us of a similar nature. Why do men so energetically reach out for honors 
in various ways. Why will an athlete so sacrifice himself? Is it fleshly gratification or mental pleasure that he is seeking? Is it a devotion to a single sport, for example? Or is it the glory to himself that he hopes to attain through the means of this sport? Indeed, this is it, as very evident in life observation, and it makes little difference, it seems, what sport it is, as long as it will bring self-glory. Think of the educator, the scientist, and the scholar who denies himself so many other gratifications for a particular form of selfishness. What is he commonly reaching after? Is it anything that he can see or feel? Here again, the eyes, of course, will make possible the gratification of vanity. But it is not the sight of the crowd that would be gratifying, but the fact that the crowd was perceived to be employing them in their accomplishments. How common is this? These are not idle, lustful creatures. They are energetic persons stretching forth with their full might toward this means of pleasing themselves. How many other forms of gratification are sacrificed because they are not consistent with this great means of gratification which they have chosen? Why do men reach out after various degrees of recognition? Is it that they may better serve humanity? Doubtless there are some who have this objective, but it is to be feared that the great multitude are seeking to be considered brilliant or cultured or accomplished. These gratifications in their various forms are in the end of a single nature, that of selfishness. And we have the text describing to us that it is not out of from the Father, but out of from the world. The same three appeals were made back in the Garden of Eden, you recall, as follows. As we read in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And we also have the statement concerning Adam, and he did eat. So these divisions of self-gratification are basic and be, can be traced and distinguished in the seekings of men. Imagine what the drunkard cares about fine clothes, what the lady of delicacies cares about intoxicating experiences, or what the learned professor may care for either. Humanity may thus be grouped according to their most outstanding means of self-gratification, although, as before said, all forms are to some extent present in all those who are living in supreme selfishness. Now these are out of from or out of from within the world, and is springing thus as a source from this world system. And thus we have the concluding statement, and the world is passing away, and the desire of it. But then we have the contrast, but he who is doing the will of God is abiding unto the age. This must refer to the certain termination of the ways of sin, and of the realm of sin, a separation from this world system, which has as its byword, gratify self supremely. When Jesus returns from heaven and establishes his kingdom, 
where righteousness shall reign, there will be no world system. It will have ceased. This must be what John views. Repentance is a ceasing from unlawful gratification of ourselves to obey God and to do His will and to be reconciled to God in the forgiveness of our sins through faith in the atoning death of Christ. So by the grace of God, we may enter in to this wonderful, blessed relationship with the great God of love and live unto the age or live forever in his wonderful presence, delivered from the agitations of supreme selfishness, finding that sweet rest with God and that sweet peace with our own hearts in the knowledge and assurance that we are doing the will of God by the grace of God and are keeping a balance of personality that we can live with and that God can approve and smile upon our hearts. Truly, this is the only life worthwhile. Who can challenge this out of his intelligence? Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that thou art willing to receive sinners back into thy heart of love if they will only turn from their sins and through faith in Christ be reconciled to thee in forgiveness. How we pray that many may so respond to thy kind overtures of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.